Hey, welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I am one of your hosts, digital editor for Lynx, Al Lunsford, joined as always by my co-host, Joe Passoff. Today, we have the pleasure of the company of George Pepper, our editor for Lynx Magazine. George, how you been? No complaints. No complaints at all. Good to be with you guys. Good, good. You are, uh, I think the last time we talked to you, you were in the midst of having to write a certain number of words per day for your new book that's coming out this year. And you're done now. Is that correct? Done. Yeah. Finished uh, oh, back in November, I guess. And in fact, uh, what's it comes out, uh, Bound Books in the middle of February, which is not too far away. And uh, the pub date is March 26. So all very exciting. And it's it's really, I'm just a ghostwriter. It's, uh, it's Hughes Norton's story. Uh, Words are mostly mine, but the story is completely his. Right. And as a, as a reminder for anyone listening, it's called Rainmaker. As George says, it comes out near the end of March. Uh, so be on the lookout uh, for that to be released. You can actually pre-order it on bookshop.org, I know. Um, so if you wanted to do that and get your copy right when it comes out, that's a good way to do it. Um, Thanks, George. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, we also want to talk... Uh, that's a new thing in 2024 for you. We want to talk about what's new in Lynx Magazine in 2024. Uh, we have a couple of new departments that we've added to the magazine. We're always tweaking every year, kind of analyzing what works, uh, new ideas potentially. So uh, there are a couple of new, we call them departments, so regular uh, pieces in each issue of the magazine. George, if you'd like to introduce what those are and tell people a little bit about them. Sure. Well, as you say, each year we do kind of take a look at uh, the departments we run in the, in the magazine and which ones are still uh, viable and have plenty of legs. You know, when, we, when you do a department in a magazine uh, for the first time, you take a hard look at it and say, is it is going to be able to run, uh, whether it's a monthly magazine you want to have probably two or three years of running it's uh since we only come out quarterly uh if we have uh iterations for a new idea if we have two dozen of them that's good for six years so i think we're okay with this one uh both of these the, the first uh is kind of uh, a direct uh, replacement of the department we had called uh, home game in which we did a lot of uh, pieces on golf in the major cities within an hour or so reach of the major cities, guy trips or buddy trips or gal trips. And uh, this one we've replaced directly with away game. And as you can imagine, that's far from home. Uh, these are more or less uh, unlikely, less likely destinations. They wouldn't be on the top tier uh, or maybe even the second tier, but they are nonetheless worth a look. And uh, if not for the golf alone, certainly for other reasons. And the first one we've done is fairly far flung and that's Vietnam. Uh, I guess about 50 years ago, that was a war zone. And now it's become kind of a tourist Mecca hotspot. Uh, and, and in golf, particularly, there's been a, a lot of building. And um, in addition to the golf, you've got the kind of the exotic charm and the French, uh, French food, French flavor. So we thought that would be a good one to, to kick off with. And uh, the guy who's going to be doing all of these is David DeSmith, who uh, among writers in golf, there probably is no one 
um, more widely traveled than David. He's been in the business a long time, not just as a writer, but as a guy involved with various um, enterprises, resorts, uh, tour operators, and uh, he's been everywhere. So with the possible exception of Joe, who has been everywhere plus, but uh, <laughs> uh, David's done a great job on this. And I, I think reader's going to enjoy being kind of given a capsule introduction to the, uh, the, the joys and glories of golf in these uh, far-flung places. Yeah, David writes, for many people listening, maybe you recognize his name for the website too, and he's often done stories on remote locales and where to play, and it's right up his alley, and he knows, yeah, like you said, he he's probably one of the foremost people that can write this department for and come up with several different places. You can find courses now in more than 200 countries in the world. Uh, there's a good chance that David's been to uh, many of those. So yeah, Vietnam to start. And then the other one, the other new department is called Legends, profiling some of the game's great characters from the past. Uh, the starter there is Bernard Darwin. And uh, George, is that... And, and Joe, as well, as being writers in the business for such a long time now, uh, what what does Bernard Darwin mean to you as a, as a golf reader and a, and a golf writer? Maybe, Joe, you can start if you'd like. Well, uh, yeah, Jim Frank, our colleague who uh, will helm this particular department, started off with one heck of a legend in Bernard Darwin. And, you know, you think when you start talking about golf legends, you you obviously think of players, you know, from whatever era, old Tom, young Tom, Bobby Jones, you know, whoever. But in the business of reading about golf, uh, I believe Bernard Darwin still is the titan. He's still the guy at the top. And all you have to do is go back to read or reread some of his, whatever you read by him, meaning tournament uh, coverage, um, whether it's his analysis of golf course and different golf courses, which he wrote about brilliantly in a book called uh, Golf Courses of the British Isles, published in 1913. Um yeah, there's a little bit of an archaic way of looking at it and evaluating it, but you're so entertained at not only what he says, but how he expresses himself uh, that you just kind of fall in love with it uh, or fall in love all over again. So great way to start. And, uh, uh, you know, Bernard Darwin was a wonderful player himself, uh, descended from practically royalty. Uh, because his grandfather, of course, was Charles Darwin, uh, evolution of the species and um, <clears throat> origins um, and and the rest. I mean, one of the great naturalist scientists and writers on that topic. So, um, again, yeah, I, I can't <laughs> I'm not waxing eloquently, but if you want somebody who does read about Bernard Darwin and then read his writings. Yeah, I agree. Um, as uh apropos of his lineage uh, jim in his lead paragraph uh, quotes herbert warren wind 
maybe a guy who's arguably in second place in the pantheon of golf writers, uh, saying brains are inherited. The Darwins had a lot of them, and uh, none, not the least of which was was Bernard Darwin, who really had a, an amazing career. You know, very few uh, people were scratch golfers at playing the game and writing the game. I can name other than Bobby Jones. Really, Darwin is the only one who comes to mind. I suppose you could say David Faraday on a different plane and a different era is pretty close to that these days. But uh, yeah, no one wrote with a, a more distinctive, uh, albeit uh, early 20th century uh, voice than Darwin. One of my favorite was uh, an essay uh, he did called An Attack of Socketing, which in those days was the Shanks. And he just writes be beautifully about coming out one morning all by himself on the practice ground and starting hit balls and one shot after another is beautiful. I mean, the larks were singing, the sun was out, life couldn't have been better. And then all of a sudden, the first shank happens and then another and another and another, and he becomes basically a raving lunatic. And it, that's kind of his ability to capture the, the, the moments and tribulations we've all gone through. He, he, he could report a golf tournament, but he could also talk from his golf heart uh, better than anyone. Yes. Well, also, Al, I love the way uh, you compare eras uh, from 100 years ago to now. And uh, he was asked why he didn't talk to some of the players involved in the tournaments he was reporting on uh, and and kind of get what they had to say. And he said, my readers are not interested in what they have to say. They're interested in what I have to say. <laughs> and of course, we've swung pretty far away from that for the most part. 100 years later, but he was so entertaining and so knowledgeable because he could compete uh, as well at such a high level as a player. Yeah. Played um, in the Walker Cup. It, that's Walker. right. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he also, in in a sort of simple way, like Peter Alice says, he wrote about what he actually saw. I'm sure there's a balance of, of that between his brilliance as both a writer and a player, but but just writing about the game differently than the, the X's and O's and uh, what someone shot out there. Um, so those will be, that'll be a highly entertaining department for us, I think, in terms of people who love golf history and want to learn more about the, the legends who made, made the game what it is today. So I'm excited to see more uh, from Jim on that. Moving on to George's column for this issue. And we covered the topic of gambling in golf in a couple of different ways in this issue. Uh, George in his column has his version of it. And we have another column on uh, the golf and gambling primer from Jason Sobel. Uh, maybe uh, how you can do it and, and not necessarily a guarantee that you will be, be successful, but here's a couple of things you need to know if you're going to go down that road of gambling on golf uh, Jason Sobel has you covered. Uh, but George, just give us a little preview of what you wrote about. Uh, yeah, my column actually uh, was 
the genesis of it was the fact that we did have the piece from from Jason in there. So I figured I'd refer to that. And it gave me an excuse to brag about the fact that I I won my own little uh, golf pool. You got, I don't know, 70, 80 guys who pick a team of players for the year. You get about a thousand points and to distribute among good players. You know, the top guys get four are worth four or 500 points each and you can buy kind of humpty dumpty players for 70 75 points and uh somehow my team of scotty scheffler uh victor hovland uh ricky fowler and uh, thomas dietry and callum Taran came through for me and uh won the pools so it gave me an excuse to use that as kind of the lead to this piece which was uh really about much more important gambles at the highest levels of the game last year that went on. I mean, it, it occurs to me that really there's no point in, in the history of the game when, when, when more or bigger stakes have been wagered. And I'm talking, of course, about live golf and uh, all the, it's gone on with the PGA tour where, uh, and that's being updated obviously constantly. But um, when I wrote this, I thought the biggest whale gambler it was jay monahan who gambled twice and lost big both times first by vehemently repudiating live golf and then by clandestinely embracing them and now he's taken another golf another gamble on this uh ssg uh group and it looks as if that may pay off but may also have additional risks in as much as as I understand it, most of the first 1.5 billion that's been uh, put into the uh, tour is going to go into the pockets of the top players, which will, I would think, be great for them. Uh, but everything that's happened in the last few years has been great for them already. Um, while continuing when continuing to uh, increase the, the the divide between the haves and the haves nots have nots on the tour and you're already here, starting to hear some of the grumbling there so that's another gamble that that mana has taken uh, also talked about the gamble that tiger and rory have taken with this tgl thing this uh indoor golf league that was supposed to have started right about now but suffered a setback when their inflatable tent um kind of uh, just exploded, I guess, collapsed, which I said, said was an ominous metaphor for the whole questionable soundness of the concept. Um, interestingly, this uh, strategic sports group, is that, did I get those, that right? Yeah, it's SSG, I know, mm. um, is a part owner of that same indoor golf concept. So I'm not sure, that's that's a gamble, I think. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Um, again, I think that was, uh, 16 players favors the top guys. Um, and it's questionable whether the world of go golf is, is ready to watch that. They haven't been ready to watch, uh, live, uh, although they had a good week last, last week uh, when the AT&T was rained out and there's no football and television that, uh, a few people did watch the playoff there. And I guess they got a benefit from it, but um, it's going to be interesting to see. There was another gamble, of course, by the, the USGA and RNA uh, late last year when they, they uh, finally 
decided to throttle back the ball, but that was a more conservative one in keeping with the RNA and the USGA's overall tenor. They didn't do a, a bifurcation and uh, they're, they're, they're keeping one set of rules and they're giving everybody plenty of time to get adjusted to this notion of throttling back the football. And most of all, they're not throttling it back much. The average male uh, amateur's drive in five, six years when this goes into effect is going to be about five yards shorter than it is now. So it wasn't much of a gamble, but you know, there, there's a lot going on uh, in the fabric of golf these days. And uh, that's just the way I was kind of taking a look at it. It seems like everybody has something, uh, some skin in the game right now, except maybe, as I said, in the end, Phil Mickelson, who in the last two years has already won as much and lost as much as he possibly could. Yeah, well said. There, There's a lot going on and a lot changing and it changes every day and you know now like rory is changing his tune on, on everything and but other guys are holding firm on their opinion of live and people coming back to the pga tour and what have you but i mean who knows what that's going to look like in a month six months I, it, it's all it's a gamble that's a it's a great way to to put it yeah it'll be interesting to watch Joe, further thoughts on any of that stuff? I mean, uh, I'd be fine with moving on if you'd like to to something else. Sure, no. I I mean, folks, you're going to enjoy George's column. Uh, if you haven't read it already, uh, maybe go back um, and look at it, reread it, because, yeah, George, you touched all the bases. You know, in talking about gambling, uh, we have a full feature uh, by an expert on that topic, Jason Sobel, um, in this issue. But the other gambles outside of gambling, uh, the $2 Nassau's and such, um, I, I think you encapsulated it beautifully. And, you know, the I mean, the larger issue is just how much affected are we by some of the gambles going on in professional golf? Um, it has affected my enjoyment as a fan of watching PGA Tour events and deprived of some of the people I used to enjoy watching. Yet, you know, does it really affect how we look at our own golf games and our enthusiasm to go play the game ourselves and travel to enjoy it? And uh, that has not diminished. And so with whatever gambling is going on among the folks who run professional tours and have to make those decisions and the implications on television networks and all of that. Um, I don't know that it's affecting how I feel about golf and going to play the game, uh, both at home and elsewhere. So, you know, that feeling is, is still very strong. And, and I think George or Colin put all of it in proper perspective. So, yeah, I, I personally enjoyed the read a lot. Well, thanks. And I agree with you. The irony is that uh, the the greater game is doing just fine as the PGA Tour struggles and fights and uh, uh, can, worries about its uh, waning uh, television ratings. And yeah, the, the, if you believe the numbers from the National Golf Foundation, every uh, by every measurement, golf is is booming so uh it seems the uh 
the amateurs are kind of, I wouldn't say oblivious, but their enjoyment of the game and their uh, willingness and interest in, in, in getting involved with it uh, doesn't really stem from what I have always called kind of the window dressing, the, the, the PGA Tour, tour the, the pros. They're fun to watch, but uh, they're not uh, compelling us to get into the game or stay in it. Yeah, a person who shares both of your sentiments there is Jeff Shackelford, who wrote about that exact thing in his column in this issue as well. So uh, simply titled, We Don't Need Them. Uh, you can also read Jeff's thoughts on the matter uh, in his column. Uh, but Joe, I uh, just want to compliment you. I, I thought particularly the uh, the feature you did uh, called The Ace and the Hurricane is one of my favorite things I've ever writ- read from you or just in general in links. Me uh, too. Absolutely great piece, Joe. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was just a, a great story and, and you told it beautifully and uh, funny little course out there too. I like the images of, of the course there. Um, but, you know, I'll, the floor is yours. I'd, I'd like to get, let you uh, briefly explain, explain this story and, and what you wrote about. Well, you know what it stems from? And this is a uh, genesis to a story that all of us sitting here have experienced at one time or another. You ever drive by a place or had a chance to play a place and didn't, didn't play it? For one reason or another, you didn't have time, you didn't even realize it was there, it, you got rained out. It, whatever it was, there was a golf course that you didn't play that you thought about and thought about. And... The first time I saw Fenwick Golf Course um, in the uh, the shores of Connecticut, um, I was uh, with my wife about 20, 20, 22 years ago, uh, visiting her family back in Connecticut, but it was for Thanksgiving. It was November. It was 20 degrees, and we drove by this golf course i mean uh, every one of us gets excited when you see golf that is next to water a big body of water and uh you know that was just something that uh oh my goodness what golf course is that is that is that a private club is that um yeah and so you start to do the research and then you find quickly that this course fenwick located in a borough of uh uh, I, I mean, it's a borough located in a, a very pretty town called Old Saybrook. Uh, it is actually has public access, but was most famous for being the residence of uh, the summer residence of Catherine Hepburn and her family, her siblings, her parents for many years. And like, oh, well, one of the most famous actresses of all time. And. Yeah, it was 20 degrees November, and it was not open, and nobody was around, and I certainly would not have been playing golf that day. But I thought about it. I thought about it, and when the years passed and there was another chance to return to the area, uh, it kind of made it a priority to see if I could uh, get aboard and play the golf course and learn a little bit more about its history and and the fact that Catherine Hepburn... Uh, was a quite an accomplished golfer herself. Well, one thing led to another and led to another. 
and it revealed one of the most amazing stories, one of the most amazing days of golf and life that anyone could ever experience. And if you wanted me to finish that thought, I could, or save it for the reader to read. But the story is called The Ace and the Hurricane. And to Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn's very good, very bad day at Fenwick, both happened to her on the same day at Fenwick. And it is a scenic nine-hole seaside golf course that you can go play, a really fun walk, at not expensive, uh, and then just kind of think about the glamour days of old Hollywood and what Catherine Hepburn meant and what Fenwick and golf and the house meant to her and her life and her career. And that that's the story behind the story, Al. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite, quite literal, your title, that the two things that happened in one day were an ace and a hurricane. So you made a hole in one in the morning and lost their house in the afternoon. <laughs> Basically. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, spend half my year, uh, up in an area, uh, not too far from where that was on, on the coast of Rhode Island, probably 50 miles North of Fenwick. And the stories you still hear and see, I, I play golf, a little course called, uh, Sikonic down in that little Compton, Rhode Island. And on the eighth hole there is a pole. It's gotta be 15 feet high. And it shows at the top of that hole, the watermark where this hurricane in 1938 reached. And I mean, it's twice the size of a human being, the height of a human being. And you just look at it and say, how could that possibly have happened? And of course there was no weather forecast in those days. And it was just the perfect storm that came out of nowhere and obliterated um, much of the area. I happened to live in a ha house uh, about 20 minutes from there, which we are told, and, and it sits on the north end of the uh, Sakonet Bay, which is uh, gonna maybe six miles inland from the ocean, but it's a direct wave that comes into the, comes up Sakonet Bay. And it, and our house sits right on that bay. And we've been told that it was the only house that remained standing after the hurricane of 1938. It's not a big house, but it was sturdily built. And it was apparently moved back several feet by the storm, but held intact. So yeah, it, and it and there used to be a, like an amusement park about two blocks from us, again, on the water and was completely destroyed. So, yeah, I can only imagine what Catherine Hepburn went through on that day. And it's a wonderful picture uh, that, that opens up that piece of her uh, with the fellow she played golf with sitting in the rubble. She's actually sitting in the bathtub, which was just about the only thing that remained of her home. That is remarkable. I wonder who was out there with their camera to take that yeah. photo. At any rate, you're they're totally right, too. Like, there's no way they could have known that that devastating of a storm was about to hit same day they were out playing golf and created their own magic that way. But yeah, beautifully written Joe uh, again. Um, well, Al, thank you. And for those of you who are going to take a look at this piece, uh, at least half the writing in this story is from Catherine Hepburn herself. 
from the autobiography she produced in 1991, um, had an amazing memory and, again, a wonderful way of expressing herself. Uh, that really did carry this piece because her observations and even the philosophical nature of what that day was, what it did to her, what it meant to the family, um, it, again, it's just uh, all came together. And, uh, you know, certainly credit Ms. Hepburn uh, for for those observations and, and really making this a remarkable story. Joe, you were a busy guy ahead of this issue because you had two feature pieces, uh, the one we just referenced and subject of great debate uh, in our world, certainly. And we, we want to know, we know all the, the big, uh, big time A-list architects out there, but who is next? Who's the, who are the guys or gals that are coming up and going to be uh, the most requested, always busy uh, on the next project, whether it's new or restoration, who's going to be that next crop to break through? Um, so you had some thoughts based on, uh, you know, track record and, and what people have coming up the pipe. What were you able to deduce uh, with that thought in mind of who's going to be the next A-list architects? Well, that's what we called this story, the next A-list architects. And conceptually, this was a real challenge. Uh, I'm not going to kid you because you had the small subset of individuals that I wound up identifying that I think were absolutely next on the ladder, meaning they're practically right there now, even if maybe the, the public doesn't think of it that way yet. Developers do. Municipalities do. Whoever is in charge of trying to recruit an architect for a project, uh, these fo these folks are right there. Uh, and the folks I did pick have been at this a while. They aren't young kids. Um, that was the hard part because you also have an aspect, who are the next A-list architects, of who's the new breed out there? Meaning maybe some architects that have done two or three or five projects, but exceptional good work. And they have great bloodlines, meaning they work for some of the A-list architects as it is. And now they're just looking to continue that crane, so to speak, um, getting to the A-list. Uh, some have already done A-list quality work, just a matter of doing a little more of it to make sure that they're right there. That was the toughest aspect to this, because partly you don't want to insult anybody by implying they're not A-list, but partly also even the folks that weren't due for that promotion that we're predicting um, are already doing strong work with extremely successful careers. Sometimes it's a function of age and ambition. You know, are you of an age and a point in your career where you're not worried about that? You've already had a great life and have done some very acclaimed work. So it, it was difficult to kind of parse, you know, from, from one to the next. And as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, pretty much right there are the ones uh, in a little sidebar that we did called Getting on the A Train and Who's Next. And we had right at the top Dana Fry and Jason Straka. Well, 
after the issue went to bed, we were at the PGA show a couple of weeks ago and Tourism Ireland did a presentation and lo and behold, Fry Straka has been awarded uh, the contract to do a brand new Lynx golf course in Ireland on the southeast coast uh, called Curraclo or Curracloe. Well, I mean, right there, that is the kind of commission that A-list architects get a brand new championship Lynx golf course in that part of the world. So, yeah, what was it originally intended is to say, just look for these guys. You know, we know who the A-listers are now because they win most of the magazine's awards and are always right there when that awesome piece of property or that classic club is ready to pull the trigger. Uh, and these next guys, the, the three we identified most clearly here were Bo Welling, both on his own and in conjunction with Tiger Woods design, TGR design, Kyle Phillips, and uh, and Trip Davis. So that's that's my preamble as far as what this piece was all about, really intending most of all to recognize the folks who are doing great work and just deserve a little more recognition for the kind of work that they do um, merely because they aren't Core Crenshaw and Tom Doak and David Kidd and Gil Hans, Jim Wagner, and so forth. Uh, I think we mentioned Jim Urbina and Andrew Green as the renovation A-listers as well. So that was it. That was just waving the flag for great architecture. And um, the next group of folks that you'll be hearing that much more about. Yeah, Keith Foster was the other one that you also mentioned too with Green and Urbina. Um, didn't want to... That, thank you, exactly. Yeah, I, I knew that. Too. They kept adding up and yeah, Keith has a sterling track record as far as renovating some of the classic or restoring some of the classics that wind up hosting major championships as well. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you did that piece, Joe. I don't know too many people who have the... Uh knowledge and the breadth of knowledge and experience to uh, make those calls. And I know you, you didn't relish doing it either, but I'm glad you were the one who did it. And I think, you, you know, it's a service not only to readers, but uh, maybe uh, there are a few um, developers out there. I mean, the, it seems as if golf course construction is picking up again these days and more people are looking at building courses. And I think a lot of them will be looking beyond the incumbent aging A-listers and wondering exactly, you know, if I want to take a gamble on uh, the next level of guy, who might that be? So uh, we maybe have done a favor, not just for these architects, but for some developers who, who might read this uh, issue of links. Even beyond that, just, hey, here's a little, little bit of recognition to say, we see you're doing good work and and there's more on the way uh just just keep these guys on the radar um because they could wind up landing you know something uh, gigantic uh, as just happened with with fry straka right i'm sure any developer developers out there who decide who they who they want to build their golf course um joe your commission rate's pretty fair on that for or any sort of reference from your piece. So uh, they'll get back to you, I'm sure. <laughs> Very good. Uh, your last piece, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here with the 
the regulars that you and I do for the magazine. So um, your Paragon department, which has been one that's stuck around now for a couple of years and people have a lot of interest in what you have to say. Um, the big, the big hard part is coming up with what we have to say and the ideas for, for that to keep going. But this was a good one, Joe, what did you write about for your Paragon this issue? Well, this one, again, uh, the whole concept of Paragon stemmed from uh, George, you thinking about certain characteristics that apply to when we play great golf courses and what makes them so special beyond just the spectacular hole or a uh you know an amazing setting or something like that and what are the other keys that go into it that we make this association with greatness and sometimes it's just the bunkering sometimes it's the greens themselves for the challenge. This one had to do with scale of a golf course. And in recent years, we've got all hepped up about golf courses with massive scale and 90 yard wide fairways and horizons that go into oblivion. And getting up with your new driver you got for Christmas and swinging from the heels and smashing the ball all over the place. And okay, I mean, that's fun <laughs> to an extent. But you know what is also fun are playing golf courses that have tremendous design, but occupy small footprints where you actually have to use some restraint, some thinking when you get up there. You have to still swing aggressively because the challenge is so great on each of these golf courses you've got to hit quality shots over and over and over but the connections are nice and tight from the previous green to the next tee there are fairways that you can see from right there it's just a small acreage and to get around especially with a wonderful walk which is not something that is always pleasurable when you get out onto some of the gigantic modern courses. And, and that was the feeling behind this one in this edition of Paragon. So we called this edition Small Wonder, meaning the best of the breed, which happened to be the East Course at Marion. And so the four courses I identified, uh, Kingston Heath in Australia, Wanamwasset, uh, George helped me with the pronunciation on that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. And then uh, Caledonia, uh, down uh, the Golf and Fish Club down in the Myrtle Beach area, uh, which is a public access golf course. Again, on the short side, don't necessarily play short, but easy to get from the previous green to the next tee. All kinds of variety within and just a small space with so much great architecture infused into that small space. That's kind of the intimacy that sometimes is missing from many modern championship layouts. So credit Marion East most of all, and then three others uh, that I felt were worthy of, mm -hmm. of mention for, uh, for being the golf courses that, uh, uh, combined all that greatness with sense of intimacy. 
Yeah, I think you uh, made good choices there. You know what I'd love to see sometime is take a, a top 100 course list and then um, look at the acreage uh, on which each of those 100 courses is laid and do a top 10 smallest golf course acreage and top 10 biggest. I don't know what the biggest ones would be, I suppose. Uh, Aaron Hills, is that the one that's like on 600, 700 acres? Have I got that right? Or is it Chambers Bay or one of those out there is really huge. Um, but my guess is if you were to look at the top 10 smallest acreage versus the top 10 largest, the really, obviously the charming ones would be on the, the former, the, the list you have here and seven others. Uh, whereas the big ballparks, where the whereas they may be more welcoming and less demanding on us, uh, won't have the charm. That's the operative word. I don't even know if I used it in the piece, but charm comes right back into this when you get intimacy. Uh, you know, you're not going to think Marion East is so charming when you post a number on your scorecard that's. <laughs> 12 strokes higher than your handicap, but you marvel. You just, if you just marvel at what Hugh Wilson and then later William Flynn and some others were able to do the quality and variety of architecture that they somehow fit into this small piece of ground. And again, the quote I use from Jack Nicholas is, is well-worn, but well-worthy acre for acre. Uh, Jack said of Marion East, it, may be the best test of golf in the world. Hmm. And that's what what he meant, because it is a small parcel, but you just get one unique hole after the next throughout this round. We've done a few pieces on the on linksmagazine.com, kind of around that. We've, we've talked about courses that are under 100 acres or notable courses that play under a par of 70 uh, that offer such intimacy as you're referring to. I, I would think another one, I love Caledonia from your list. Uh, that's one of my favorite courses anywhere. Um, and then another one to keep on an eye on that's uh, opening this year's Tom Doak's Sedge Valley, which will be a par 68 there at Sand Valley Golf Resort, another uh, intimate routing on, I, I don't know what the acreage is out there, but uh, probably a bit smaller, certainly much smaller than Mammoth Dunes is. Uh, that will be a big contrast for them. But uh, yeah, great job again, Joe. I wrote uh, my first peak on this issue is, you know, I, there's a lot of talk, has been a lot of talk in the past few years of how great the golf in the state of Michigan has gotten. And it just feels like every time I hear about Michigan golf, it's I'm hearing about a, one of a few places. Uh, it's up the the coast of of Lake Michigan or northern Michigan, kind of like that Traverse City area um, where Doak is going back to redo High Point there, his first course. Um, or it's like the Upper Peninsula. Um, never really hear much about the the other side and uh, the Motor City of Detroit. So was pleasantly surprised to learn about a new project that um, 
I guess it's it's some somewhat new, but it's uh, a revamping of the St. John's Resort in the Detroit suburb of Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, they had 27 holes that Raymond Hearn came out, uh, Michigan-based architect, and redid uh, about 200 acres. And so he created a new 18-hole course called the Cardinal, uh, converted the remaining nine holes left over into a seven-hole short course, two-acre putting course. So high-end golf, public golf, back in Detroit, uh, from what I read the first time in more than 20 years, uh, the rates there will be somewhere in the 100 to 200 range for anyone out of town. Uh, residents a little bit cheaper than that. And uh, it's a very historic, you know, 118-room red brick inn. It's a popular place to have weddings in the Detroit area uh, of Michigan. So it's just... I just thought it was a, a different and it looks beautiful out there. Uh, he talked about saving a lot of trees instead of getting rid of them, which is something that not a lot of people uh, are doing these days. So uh, Parkland style, it's the picture that we included in first peak, I think is of the, uh, the seven hole short course. That's uh, the main course is called the Cardinal short course is the little Cardinal. And then the putting course is the CPC, the Cardinal putting course. Um, interesting place. I hadn't heard of it before, but I guess it's been around a while. And now they've got some brand new golf to display. Al, uh, I, I enjoyed that piece because uh, it did give me a look at something that was fresh and new in a part of the country uh, that doesn't always get that kind of treatment. Um, one of the things I found interesting in the piece is uh, that Raymond Hearn, who I've had the pleasure of playing golf with, uh, took some inspiration in this complete makeover from uh, England's Sunningdale, the old course, and some other Golden Age courses. You know, we're seeing this now almost as the default mode with these massive renovations and makeovers that we're going to take our inspiration from golden age uh, whether it's uh, uh, the edging the contouring uh, the strategies and so forth george a question i'd toss to you having seen all of this evolutionary architecture like i have in these past 50 years is um is all of that the hard edge peat dye kind of things that were so popular in the 70s and 80s and a little bit beyond. The mounding eras of the 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s. Is all of that architecture now passe, or is that something that we can appreciate and say, vive la différence, it's just another way of expressing ourselves uh, through design? Wow, uh, that's a question I probably is a, above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> it, it, would, it occurred to me was, you know, uh, if you look at, again, a list of uh, the world's greatest courses, a lot of them, the, the earliest ones obviously uh, came from, from Great Britain. And uh, most of them, many of them were 19th century, early 20th century. And, you know, the, the 19th century belonged to Great Britain. That was their century. 
probably at least a third to a half of the, the top 100 courses now are American, come from either this golden age or any of several mini golden ages or <laughs> silver ages that have uh, occurred in the last uh, 75 years of the century. And that's America's century, the 20th century. And uh, now I think uh, the 21st century is up for grabs. I don't think it's going to be America's century. I'm pretty damn sure it's not going to be Great Britain's century. It's uh, it's going to be an international uh, century. And um, I think we're in the same way, golf course design is going in a lot of different directions. It's it's not classic. It's not, I don't think any more minimalist is necessarily defining things. I think it's uh, taking kind of a, a worldwide, um, you know, wherever the course is being built, its features are, are dependent on the terrain and, and mores of that area. So I think it's much more of a free-for-all, but, but it's going to pan out just as the domination of this century is it's as i say it's it's a big question well, yeah I'll, I, I didn't mean to hijack this particular podcast <laughs> no. uh, because this is probably topic for for uh for links magazine in a future issue or for another podcast in the future but where is the future of design going you yeah. know if so much of what we're seeing now with resto you know restoration renovation the hybrids of the two and even new projects that harken back to this 1920s sort of architecture, what will be the next trend? Uh, what will be the next in innovation in terms of design and who will set that trend? Indoor. So, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sadly, that may be it, indoor golf. For the rest of the issue, I'll leave it to uh, you as the listener and the reader to to find out what else we've written about in our winter issue. Of course, you can always go to our website, linksmagazine.com, click uh, the subscribe link, and you can subscribe to the magazine to receive your hard print copy, which we all love. Uh, or you can look at the digital magazine online or subscribe to just read the articles on our website. We've got a lot of options for you. Um, but yeah, we're we're about to close another issue uh, very soon so we'll be turning around that spring issue right away as well but wanted to touch a little bit about what just came out in our winter issue so i appreciate the time gentlemen to to break that stuff down it's always a pleasure and look forward to the next one <laughs>